Hi, so today on our weekly Sports Tech podcast, powered by the Sports Tech Advisors, uh, we have the honor to have Adam Scheyer, the founder of Siri, uh, the well-known digital assistant used by millions of iPhone users every day. Uh, as some of you may probably know, Adam is the, also the founder of Vibe Labs, which was acquired by Samsung. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So uh, today what I wanted to do was uh, talk about how you started Siri at SRI, and then we will get your thoughts on the future types of AI-based application and experiences that you expect to see in the future in the world of elite sports. How does that sound? Excellent. Great. So uh, for the audience who is listening, Adam, uh, could you tell us about how you got into uh, computer programming and, and the world of AI? Sure. I, I guess it's a little embarrassing because it will date me. Uh, back in the early 80s, the Rubik's Cube just had come out and it became very popular. And my brother and I were very interested in Rubik's Cube. We actually won the Northeast Championship two years in a row. Uh, and wow. so, but that was actually, Rubik's Cube was really my, what got me into computers. A friend had learned just enough programming to teach me very simple things, input statement, print statement, go to, if then. And with that, my first program ever was a program where you would type in your your pattern in the Rubik's Cube and it would tell you how to solve it. So that really got me started. Um, once I graduated high school, uh, so I was in high school, I decided to to try to find something that I wanted to do in college. And for me, the human mind was the most interesting thing in the world. So I went to a liberal arts undergraduate university where I studied how we work from all different dimensions, including uh, psychology and philosophy, linguistics, neuroscience, computer science, mm -hmm. uh, mathematics. Um, and it was just very, very interesting to see the magic that is the human mind. Well, that's great. And, and I think I was reading an article about an interview, I think, where you mentioned, I think your grand, your grandfather spoke like eight languages or something. Is that right? Oh, yes. He, um, once I finished school, um, the next question was, what do I want to do with the rest of my, you know, my life or my career? And mm -hmm. I was inspired by my grandfather. He would walk down the street. He was learning his eighth language in his nineties by going yeah. to the library and reading a newspaper. And um, I decided that I wanted some of him in me. So I actually ended up going to work in Paris for four years. Where yeah, I, I realized that. A large computer, a uh, large AI system. It was actually deployed in 50 countries and saved the company I was working for tens of millions of dollars every year. Um, but yeah, that that's what led me to get away from the East Coast United States where I had always grown up. I was trying to get a little perspective like my grandfather had. He could talk to any person uh, in any language, it seemed to me, and he had seen so much of the world. That's awesome. Uh, actually, my, my great-grandfather actually spoke seven languages. Uh, wow. He was a, a crew captain on a, on a ship. Um, so I never met him, but, you know, it's quite amazing when you, yeah. speak, you want to speak so many languages. So uh, that's great. So, so what was it like to work at Siri you know, with guys like Luke Julia, who I know, great guy, and, and Dave Martin. I mean, you, you guys were working on some of the coolest stuff, like TVs that could talk to uh, uh, in order to control your house. I mean, what was it like uh, to work there? 
back then? Sure. So I actually say the first version of Siri that I created, so it was at a company called SRI International. It used to be Stanford Research Institute. Yeah. Um, but then they just dropped the, the words and went with SRI. So back in 1993, before I ever saw a web browser, I imagined this world where I said, someday there will be computers around the world with content and services we want to access. And we need a way to discover all of those services and to interact with them. So I, I started, you know, a vision. My, my idea was, was that you would have an assistant that you could talk to, that you could interact with in various ways, including pen and writing and clicking on a computer screen. And you would tell the assistant what you wanted to know or what you wanted to do. And the assistant would break your request down into subtasks, know where all the right content and, and machines were around the world to execute those tasks. And it would route the requests, gather back information from those computers, interact with the user as needed, learn from those interactions, and help the user get um, their, their job done. And so I built a system like this in 1993. Uh, mm -hmm. before I ever saw a web browser. So I never conceived of the internet as having hyperlinks and multimedia web pages. I thought you'd just have an assistant. Yeah. Um, and I worked on that with Luke Julia. So in 1994, he came and he, he was really the user interface guru. He has a PhD mm -hmm. in multimodal system huh. um, and has done a lot of speech recognition and handwriting recognition. So he helped me add these really cool user interfaces on top of this distributed um, architecture kind of for, for this next generation Internet or before the Internet existed. Uh, that, and I worked on that with David Martin and also with Didier Guzzoni from EPFL in Switzerland. That's great. So, so in a way, you guys were kind of pioneers, right? You were building the stuff that have kind of become the norm today, right? Would you agree with that? or? Uh, I think so. It was certainly ahead of its time because the idea of an internet that you could talk to to get everything done, that's still 25 years later. It's still an interesting idea today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, we do have things like Alexa and Google Assistant and Cortana and Bixby and Siri that yep. you can talk to to do a few things. Um, but the world that we imagined back at SRI in the 90s still has not yet come to pass. I think it's getting closer and closer every day. Yep. Uh, a few examples. So some systems that we built, uh, you know, Luke and David Martin and Didier and I, uh, in the late 90s, we built um, two systems for the house, two for the, for the office, and two for the car that mm -hmm. all interacted with each other in a completely seamless way because it was all wow. built within the same infrastructure. That's so, amazing. Yeah. So some examples were uh, we had an automated refrigerator that knew every bit of its contents um, because of RFID tags. So it knew what you had and how mm -hmm. long it's been there. It would help you plan your week's recipes, your your, your meal planning for the week, by looking at recipe websites and suggesting things that you can make with the ingredients that you have. And if you were missing an ingredient, you could order online using voice and web van, this was the 90s, uh, would deliver it to you. 
Um, you could then walk into your living room and uh, turn on your TV and you had complete control of your house. So when the phone rang, the speaker ID of who was calling would actually display on the TV that you were watching. Um, you mm. could answer it from the TV or let it go to voicemail and then say, play my voicemail messages. And it would send the audio over the TV while you continue to watch the sports game, for instance. Yeah. You could ask any question that you had. So, hey, what is the you know, what's the record of the, this team that I'm playing or who, how many points did this player score last night? And it would mm -hmm. display it on the TV in a voice interactive way while you're watching the game. And, and it was in the 90s? In the, yeah, late 90s. Wow. And then you would, um, you could also, you had your office system. So if you had a meeting that day, all of the meeting was recorded and automatically notes were kept in various ways, um, including from whiteboards, smart whiteboards, and things of that sort. And you could say to your TV, oh, pull up my meeting notes from my two o'clock meeting today. And you could browse your notes picture in picture while you continue to watch the game. You'd, you'd head to your car and you'd be driving around. And we had a 3D um, model of the world that we could imprint. So you would be looking out your windshield and as you pulled up the hill, you'd see this building appear behind you. Um, but in your augmented reality experience, it would label, oh, this is this building. Uh, if the refrigerator back home said you needed milk, it would realize you were passing a grocery store. It would remind you and then you could either get directions to the grocery store of your choice or just pull into the store that you were that you were passing, um, you know. So it was kind of this really uh, whole whole experience. Whether you're in the office, whether you're at home, whether you're in the car, Very multiple similar. systems, yeah. all controlled by a single assistant, really, mm -hmm. um, in a very multimodal way. And so I think we're getting there today. Samsung has committed to get all of its billion devices you know, including refrigerators and washing machines mm -hmm. and smart speakers and um, and uh, phones and, and more, heads-up displays mm -hmm. for, for AR and VR, um, all of these enabled with an intelligent assistant called Bixby. And yep. so maybe we'll get actually in the commercial world much of what, what uh, Luke and David and I uh, prototyped back in the 90s. Yeah, and I know that's your that's your vision, and we're, we'll get into that uh, in a few. But so obviously, people know you as the kind of the father of Siri, right? That's your baby, and so so uh, how did Siri come about? Was it when you came back to Siri and worked on Project Kalu and worked with Norman Binarski and great guy by the way, SRI Ventures and and Dag uh, Kiklos and Tom Gruber? I mean, was it when you guys came up with Siri at the time? Um, yes, yes. So, uh, as I mentioned, I started on this Odyssey in 1993, more than 25 yeah. years ago, um, and had been building through the 90s all these different versions of, you know, assistance for your home and assistance for military, assistance for robots, assistance for all these different versions. Probably, mm -hmm. we probably did 50 or 60 versions of, of Siri when working at SRI. And one of the largest projects was a government-funded research grant, something like $250 million spread over five years that I was leading technology for. And the goal was to build an assistant 
that could live with you and, and, and help you get your work done more efficiently by learning um, what was called in the wild. So it wasn't coded to have knowledge in it. It would acquire knowledge just by interacting with you, by observing you. And based on that knowledge, it would help you do your job, your office work much faster. So that was called uh, Project Halo. Yeah. It's the cognitive assistant that learns and organizes. Um, we had at the peak 27 or 28 um, universities all reporting into SRI um, to build this one assistant. So that was a giant research project, but yeah, over in uh, SRI Ventures, um, a guy named Norman Winarski was looking at commercializing some of the technology that SRI was developing. And he had the idea to, uh, to lure in Dog Kitlaus, who was an executive at Motorola, to become an EIR, Entrepreneur in Residence, at SRI. So Dog yeah. would wander the halls, talking to different researchers, seeing what they did, and, and trying to see if he could make a business out of this idea. And when we met, he says, wow, an assistant that you can talk to to do everything on the Internet, that's something that I could, I could put a business plan around. So working with Norman, and I was providing the technology, um, again, working with Didier Guzzoni and, and others, uh, we built a prototype, um, and we were starting to put together a pitch um, to, to go to venture capitalists and raise money and actually start this as a spin-out company. Um, as part of that process, um, Norman brought in, he wanted outside due diligence, and he contacted a guy named Tom Gruber, um, who is a well-known expert, not only in user, user experiences, but also artificial intelligence. And he was brought in to kind of ask us all the hard questions that we might get asked along the way. And it was a really funny meeting because he came in, you know, super skeptical. He's like, yeah, I've been around AI and these types of systems for decades. How are you going to do this? And then I would answer. And he's like, hmm, well, yeah, but then how could this work? And then I would show him in our prototype how it worked. And he'd be like, hmm. And by the end of this two-hour meeting, mm -hmm. he walked out of the room. You know, he was the guy who was supposed to give us all the hard questions and he walked out we of the room. He said, hey, we answered the questions. Yeah. So we answered the question so well on the way out. He goes, do you need another co-founder? And so Doug Ketlaus, Tom Gruber, and I um, were the co-founders of, of Siri. Mm -hmm. uh, we started out as a company. Um, we built over two years uh, an app that we launched free in the App Store. Yeah. Um, we were about 20 people in the company total. And um, yeah, it was a pretty exciting uh Pretty exciting time. When did you actually knew that you had something that could impact millions of people? What was the ha-ha moment, like when when you had that conversation or together? Um, so yeah, that's a really good question. I'll tell you almost the avert, the reverse of the aha moment. So we had mm -hmm. this prototype, and it was working pretty well for simple queries, like find me a French restaurant um, in Palo Alto for two people tonight that would go and understand that request and, and contact OpenTable and find the reservation and actually make the reservation. But it was a prototype. And so then as we were building it for real, we needed to load in 20 million business names, you know, there in the United States. And we realized every word in the English language 
is a business name, mm -hmm. <laughs> literally. Yep. And so all of a sudden, you know, our system, which works so well before we loaded in this real world, messy, huge data, um, all of a sudden we load in this data and nothing works. I typed in the most basic command, which was start over, which would reset mm -hmm. the system. And it said, looking for businesses named start in, Ov in over Louisiana. Yep. And I'm I like, whoa, <laughs> what just happened? You know, what, you what you thought, I guess. Yeah. It was it, the ambiguities in language are incredibly complex. So if mm -hmm. I tell you, uh, book a four star restaurant in Boston, mm -hmm. you instantly know what it means. But when you think about it, um, you know, book can not only mean, uh, you know, like the physical book or the verb to make a reservation, but book is also a city in the United States and yep. star the city in the United States. And there are 13 different Bostons in the United States. So which city am I talking about in mm -hmm. that sentence? And star restaurant is the name of a restaurant, but I'm not but talking about the restaurant. How do you make the AI understand those nuances? Exactly. So it was an incredibly, the ambiguities, which are exponential, they just mm -hmm. combine in huge ways. Um, and trying to do this with, with all this massive data of all the places in the world, all the business names in the world, all the movie names in the world. There was a movie that came out, actually two different movies that came out uh, called Nine. One was the number nine and one was written out as the word nine. Those were the movie names. So you could say, uh, I want two ticks for nine at seven. And you had to understand what that meant. So, so the, the complexity of language was very, in the real world, was very difficult. I think most people in the industry um, didn't think it was possible. You know, Google and others, you could put words into a search engine. It would return documents, popular mm -hmm. documents, but put those words on it. But to do this as a broad domain, meaning it can handle many things from sports and movies and directions and restaurants and everything you would want it to do to handle the ambiguities mm -hmm. implicit in the language and, and to do it with conversation and context and follow ups. It was incredibly difficult. I think most people in the industry didn't think it was possible. And so when we managed to climb back out from having start over completely fall apart. And we were now able to understand the complexity of um, all of these different requests from many different industries and many different styles um, in a robust way. I think that was our aha moment where we said, you know, I think we've done something that no one thought was possible and that's going to change the world. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine how complex I must have been to do that. So. So, you know, several weeks after you guys launched Siri, right? What was it like to receive a phone call from someone like Steve Jobs asking you to come to his house to talk about Siri? I mean, was it a complete surprise to you? Oh, yeah, that, that's a funny story. So, so, right, we had launched a free app. It was in the App Store. It was very exciting because we, we had this system that would kind of show logs of, of what people were, were typing. So late at night, uh, we were all, you know, we had just launched the app. And we were watching kind of these requests stream in from people around the world. Yep. And we were like, there was this huge cheer because we knew that the types of things people were asking were actually things that the system did really, really well. Yeah. And it was going to be popular. So 
And people started to tweet. One of my favorite requests was, uh, it was like someone came out of the future and said, here, you've got to try this app. So that was one of my favorite quotes. So we were pretty happy. We we're excited um, to have launched this app. And then two weeks later or so, two or three weeks later, mm -hmm. we get this phone call. So it was on our, the phone so of our CEO. Yourself, or was it somebody else on the team? Or? Say again. It was uh, so. It was the phone of Doug Kitlaus, who's our CEO. Yep. And back then, so he had an iPhone, obviously. Yep. I don't know if you remember, but it used to be when the phone would ring, you had to swipe to answer. Yeah. But I sometimes that. the phone, the phone wouldn't pick up. You'd swipe, and it, it wouldn't you know, answer. You'd yeah. Swipe and swipe. Yeah. And so we get this call, and it says Apple on it, and Doug's <laughs> like, "Hey guys, come over." And so Tom and I come over. Uh, and he's like swiping and swiping and it's not answering. And it's like on the fifth or seventh swipe. And finally it answers. Yeah. And puts it on speaker and we hear this voice that says, Hey, it's Steve. What you doing? Want to come over to my house tomorrow? And we were like, Whoa. You know, it was just like, yeah, it was crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. That kind of reminds me. You mentioned the iPhone. Uh, one of my friend, uh, Andy Grignon worked on the iPhone, right? And yes, I know. He's saying, look, uh, this, this, the iPhone was not supposed to work, right? <laughs> you know, uh, that, that's awesome. So, um, so then you went to his house and then what happened? Yeah. So we went over, uh, his house the next day and we talked for a few hours, um, about technology, about the future. Uh, right away, um, I got a sense of who Steve Jobs was. He, He had a fire burning in him. I mean, he mm -hmm. was, he wanted to win. Yeah. And I was like, boy, you know, he's already changed so many fields. He's not only reinvented mobile computing, but computing itself with the first multi-windowed systems and then movies with Pixar yeah. and, you know, music with iPod and the app, you know, app stores. And it was just crazy. And, um, and you'd think he could just like rest a little bit, but he had none of that in him. Yeah, um, yeah. And he asked me a question and he goes, what do you think about, you know, do you think Apple should buy, and I'm not going to reveal the company, do, yeah, yeah, yeah. do you feel Apple should buy this company? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I don't think so. And he's like, what? No, why, 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 why? And we started going at it on the very, very first day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, here's why, A, B, C, D, and E. And he's yeah. like, hmm, okay, well, maybe. I'm so going to think about that. Did your opinion or was it a kind of person who listened or no? So the thing I loved about Steve is that he had opinions, but he never felt that he was necessarily right. He yeah. was always open to hearing another perspective and thinking about it. And if you couldn't defend your position in a reasoned way, he'd like, I don't have time, and he would knock you aside. But mm -hmm. I never had a problem with Steve. I mean, he would ask me things or we would talk about things. And as long as you knew what you were talking about and had the data to back it up, he was always open to considering that new idea, that different perspective. Yeah. And that was my favorite part of Steve Jobs. I always felt that I could, you know, we disagreed on, like when we worked on Siri, you know, a lot of it we agreed on and, and a lot he, um, we disagreed on. And he said, you know, I've heard you. I don't think that'll be a problem. We're going to do it this way instead, and here's why. And I was always cool with that. I said, you know, looking back, there's still times when I look back and say, you know, I think I was still right. 
There are many times when I look back and I say, you know, he was actually right. You know, looking back at that disagreement, history will show that he was right. Um, But his method of always listening and thinking about it and hearing you and then saying, no, we're going to do it this way for this reason. I'm like, I love that about, about Steve Jobs. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people have maybe had the misconception. They thought that he was, he, was not, he was not listening to people necessarily, right? But what you're saying is that he would take feedback and, and with some uh, reasoning, right? Uh, and then tell Absolutely. You- he, he was a great listener. So many leaders feel like they're the smartest person in the room and they're right and they have their opinion and, and it's very hard to change their opinion. Yeah. He always was looking for to learn from someone else, someone smart. You know, he wanted to be right. He wanted to win. Mm -hmm. And that meant he had to learn and think and listen. And and I thought that was a a great attribute about Steve Jobs. That's great. Um, So obviously, a lot of people, millions of people are using Siri every day, right? So, I mean, how does it feel to get up in the morning knowing that so many people are using your product? I mean, it must be pretty awesome feeling, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's super cool. I think I, I counted that Siri has been on over a billion iPhones is um, it oh. already yeah. uh, over time. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I summed up the, the published numbers because it first came out on October 4th, 2011 yeah. uh, on the iPhone 4S and Steve Jobs died the very next day, October 5th. So you can definitely say that Siri was um, Steve Jobs' last, you know, baby, last big creation. Um, and Tim Cook, you know, announced that really the iPhone 4S was just the iPhone 4 with Siri and, mm-hmm. and a slightly better camera. Um, the next two quarters uh, were actually the greatest quarters in technology history in terms of revenues and profit margins. Apple stock went from 350 to 650 in six mm-hmm. months, just selling the iPhone 4. And, yeah. and Apple became the most valuable company in the world, uh, surpassing Exxon at the time, you know, in terms of market cap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's clear that Siri was a big impact uh, for Apple. Yeah. Um, it's been on, you know, every phone since the iPhone 4S, and there have definitely been more than a billion, 1.2 billion phones uh, sold just phones. Mm-hmm. Now Apple has, of course, put Siri in many of their devices, including Apple Watch and Apple TV and the Mac itself, and um, mm-hmm. so it, it really is uh, getting out everywhere. Well, I tell you, my, you know, back then I was working for Samsung. Well, now let me go back a little bit. So I was I was working as an analyst at IDC, and when when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone, obviously uh, the you know the founder of Microsoft, right? Said it's it's not even going to work. It's not going to be a success, and and I, and I think um, it wasn't. It wasn't the case, right? It became a huge success. And then when I joined Samsung uh, back in 2010, we had such a hard time to compete against Apple, and because the, of the beauty of the the iPhone, right? And they were trying yeah. so hard to try to replicate, uh, you know, the the UI, the, the perfect UX and UI integration, and and that you know, and of course, Siri has a big part of it, right? Siri was kind of tying everything together. So mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I'll tell you one funny story about how it feels to be an entrepreneur. So when we just started the company, pretty we were still pretty small. Yeah. I walked into an Apple store and there on the wall were icons of the biggest apps. So there was Google, Skype, Pandora, yeah. um, 
you know, all of these big, big, uh, powerful companies had their apps on the Apple Store wall. And yeah. so as an entrepreneur, we were, you know, a couple of guys and just starting out. And I said, someday Siri is going to be an app on the Apple wall just next to Google and mm -hmm. Skype and Pandora. That was the biggest dream I could have. And it seemed so impossible. Yeah. So crazy. Like, wow, you know, we were just a bunch of people who, how are we going to do something as important as a Google or a Skype? And then, of course, when uh, Siri came out on the iPhone, um, a bunch of people from my team, we said, we have to go to an Apple store to just see yeah, of course. Uh, if people are trying it and liking it and how it's working. And so it's pretty exciting. And we walked up to that same Apple store. And now <clears throat> on the front door, next to the front door, they had this giant plasma display made up as like an iPhone prototype. Mm -hmm. And they were above the plasma display. It said, introducing Siri. And they had kind of Siri use cases playing on a loop. And I got this chill where I remembered so clearly wanting to be one of 100 icons yeah. on the wall. And now I was the front door. It was like my mind just literally was blown. It was, became a reality or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just it became a reality, but even so much more than I than the biggest dream that I could have, the biggest dream that I could imagine of being one little icon on the wall yeah. with lots of others. It was like, wow, this not only happened, mm -hmm. it happened times a thousand. I'm the front door, not just one little icon. So it was a very, very cool experience. Doing That's that. awesome. Uh, so obviously, you know, let's talk about sports a little bit because, you know, our audience are mostly comprised of sports and tech executives. And I know you're a huge uh, Warriors fan, right? I love the Warriors too. So, oh, absolutely. You know, today there, yeah, I mean, there, there are many professional teams that are using uh, chatbots, right? The Warriors are very good at that. Uh, you know, Siri is also being used to let the fans check on live scores. And, and they're also putting like Google Home and Alexa type devices in the suites in the stadium to improve the fan experience. So in your view, so what do you think would be the killer AI sports conversational experience, in your opinion? Well, so I've started a few companies, so two in kind of the assistant space, namely Siri and then Viv Labs, which sold to Samsung. Yep. Uh, I also started another company called Sentient, which is a machine learning AI mm -hmm. company. Okay. Um, and I think AI in general will transform sports in so many ways. Um, and AI being both optimizing decisions and, and letting athletes be their best selves. Yeah. So today, everything is instrumented. We can have wearable technologies that capture every movement, every heartbeat, you know, every little aspect of an athlete. We have video cameras that can watch um, the interactions of teams so they know every position of every player and who's passing the ball to what. Yep. And then they can number crunch and do machine learning to do and data data analysis to understand when does this team play best against, you know, other teams, what defenses work best, what player combinations work best. Yep. So I think AI in general will absolutely optimize both indi the individual, how they perform, mm -hmm. uh, and teams. And, of course, an assistant as an interface to that AI knowledge base um, will be incredibly powerful. I mean, a coach will be able to say, bring up, you know, recommended 
uh, plays that I should do in this situation? Or what mm -hmm. is that, you know, ask questions. What is the success rate? Mm -hmm. uh, players, when they're, when they're working out, can have a little earbud in their ear and that's giving them feedback based on how to shoot better, how to, you know, position better, what they're doing wrong and, and almost get this kind of force speed, this, this, um, real time adjustment where they can talk to the assistant, the assistant can talk to them and the assistant becomes an automated data driven coach. Yeah. Uh, of course, for the fans, um, you know, fans, it'll, it'll let them pull up not only what's the score of the current game, maybe they're watching the game or something else, but they can also tap into this huge amount of data and be able to get new insights, yeah. um, be able to check out history, to engage, to, you know, pull up news stories and Twitter feeds and, you know, the, really tap in to the full 360 degree view around the game that they're watching or the team that they're passionate, um, passionate about. And of course, interfaces, um, will continue to evolve. So today, you know, you watch at home on a TV, but the TV experience will, will evolve, um, you know, tremendously. And I think language and an assistant who knows your preferences and has access to immense amounts of data, mm -hmm. um, will really transform the, the fan experience. The last thing I'll mention is, um, you know, I know there are a lot of that betting is a big topic mm -hmm. yep. um, in sports and, and we're, it looks like we're moving more and more to legalize betting in more and more states. Um, and as betting progresses, you're not just going to bet on the score of the game, but there will be bets um, of all different sorts, right? You know, I'll bet that the first person to score a point in the half will be this person. I bet that you know, this person outscores the guy he's guarding by this many points. And there's such a wide range of things that could be bet on and, and gambled live as you're watching the, the, the game. Mm -hmm. um, having an assistant that's automated and, and knows your preferences can, um, can help place those bets uh, much more easily or can help assist you and bring up information to help to help you make good decisions um, in that space. I, I think that that may also be another uh, aspect of the, of the game of sports that's going to grow. And I think a conversational assistant interface and the AI and data analysis behind it will, will play big roles uh, in that. I think, I think you're spot on and, and we're kind of starting to see some glimpse of that. There are some companies trying to build some of those experiences, but they're based on what you just described. I think we still have a way to go. So how, how oh, many years do you think, we, you know, when we would, when we would start to see those types of experiences, are we talking about five years from now, 10 years from now, or what is your, your take on that? Uh, well, I, I think some of it in some form, we're starting to see it already, yeah. right? Even in 2011 or 12, you could ask Siri, when's the next Warriors game? And, and, right. you know, what's, what are, what are the odds on mm -hmm. that game and, and things like that? Uh, through an assistant. I mean, it's amazing. We carry around in a pocket, our pocket, a supercomputer mm -hmm. that we can talk to that has access to the internet and this huge array of data. So we're already living in the future and have been for, for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. um, that said, you know, we're getting, it's going to grow and the, the data that we have access to, the intelligence that's applied across that data 
Yeah. Um, and the ubiquity of the assistant. So I say that every 10 years, the way people interact with computers changes. So think about it. Mid 80s, everyone, uh, you know, the PC came out and we all had to learn about Windows and a mouse and, and, um, you know, keyboards and, and, and how to run a, a PC computer. 10 years later, the web emerged in the mid 90s with hyperlinks and multimedia documents and URLs and back buttons. 10 years approximately after that, out came the uh, iPhone and the App Store. And now we had to learn about downloading apps and pinch and zoom and um, uh, all of that kind of experience. And it's, and last year was the 10th anniversary of the App Store. Yeah. So I believe we're sitting at a point where, yes, we have assistants like Bixby and Alexa and and Cortana and Google Assistant, they only do a handful of things. And most of those things are programmed by the big companies themselves. You know, what's the weather, set a timer, play a song. Um, third parties are beginning to start to be able to create skills or add-ons to an assistant, but none of them are used. It's not scalable. So yeah. everyone will say, get me the weather, but very, very few people use third-party skills. And I make this as the, the analogy of what if we had a web that only had bookmarks and no search engine? That's kind of where we are today, right? Mm -hmm. You use the 10 things that are in your bookmarks, the set a, send a message and set a timer, but you're really not accessing the whole rest of the web because it's not, it's not easy to discover or That's right. to have a scalable view. And so, but now companies like Samsung and, and powered by Viv technology, mm -hmm. I'll get a little plug in. Yep. We're going to be coming out with a new kind of, I'll call it an app store for an assistant that we believe will scale in a whole new way. And last November, we launched tools at bixbydevelopers.com that are mm -hmm. unlike any programming environment ever created before. Literally the AI writes most of the program for you and with you. It's, mm -hmm. it's a really crazy experience as a developer. But what this means is any company, any service, any use case that has a website or an app, you'll now be able to plug in uh, what we call a capsule. You'll be able to create a capsule that will encapsulate your experience. And you it's like a knowledge pack that will be able to be plugged into your personal assistant. Um, and users will be able to discover them, buy them if, if, if they're not a free capsule. You can, you can make money off of the capsules. And soon we believe every industry and every company, uh, will, will be using an assistant as a major component of how they offer their services, just like they do today with the web and with a mobile app. And every user, will now start using the assistant as a major way for getting things done, not only for sports, but for everything they do, um, because it'll be a truly scalable experience. So I believe, uh, how long will that take? I think it'll be, you know, the marketplace will come out this year. Probably um, competitors will be looking at this and, and coming out with their versions, just like yeah. when we came out with Siri six mm -hmm. months to a year later, all the other big companies had their Siri clones. 
So I believe kind of ubiquitous assistant that can, can do everything that we do on the internet today, or most things on the internet, will be here in full force within two years from now. Two years from now. Um, and, I, and I think that will change, as I said, you know, people will still use a PC, people still use the web, people still use smartphones and apps. But this will be a new component, and I think it will be a significant way because it's just so easy, so frictionless um, to have an assistant who can who can handle multiple complex tasks for you, mm-hmm. knowing your preferences and being able to automate getting those those tasks done. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, when we met uh, in in San Jose um, the other day, you mentioned that the issue today, from what I understand, is that. The way that series was built on the iPhone is different from the way it was built on the iPad, right? From what I understood. And that therefore you cannot really have a true cross-platform uh, AI conversation. If you t- start asking a question to Siri on the iPhone and then you continue conversation on the iPad, it will, it will not be seamless. And, and, and what you guys are building is going to enable a seamless experience. Is that, did I get that right? Uh, yes, that, that's right. So today, the Siri on your Apple TV and the Siri on your Apple Watch and the Siri on your iPhone and your iPad, they're not all the same Siri. They, yeah. they do different things and they know different things, right? Unless, you know, if you have contacts on your phone, number one, and, and, a, and you didn't sync it to contacts on your phone number on your iPad, for instance, Siri will only know the, the contacts um, that are on that iPad. And so our vision is we want an ass- one assistant that you can access where the device is really just the context. So wh- whether I'm talking on a TV or a refrigerator or a smartwatch or a phone, I want to know that Bixby knows me. If I've told it something once on one device, it should know it over on a second device. Um, it's the same assistant. And so we've designed it in that way that a user can just think of it as, oh, it's just my Bixby. And the fact that I'm talking to it over a, a phone or a TV doesn't really matter. Additionally, for developers, when you create your capsule, you don't create different capsules for each device. That would be really hard to maintain. You create one capsule. This is, this is the interface for my service. And you can make within that capsule small adaptations for, well, what does it look like? It'll look a little different on a watch than it does on a TV or if there's no screen, the dialogue might change a little bit, but it's, it's, it leverages and maximizes um, reuse. So you build one capsule, most of it is reused, but you can tailor it slightly to have to be the same capsule, but have slightly different experience depending on the device that you're accessing. That, that makes sense. Um, so, you know, you talk about a bit about AR and VR earlier and so obviously there's a lot of hype about AR and VR with companies like Oculus and, and Google and Magic Leap and Autolens, you know, but so for example, uh, Magic Leap is actually working on an assistant for the Magic Leap mm-hmm. uh, devices, right? So what do you think, uh, what does the future of AR and VR and AI all together look like? And what kind of experience is? I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, I think a new paradigm emerges, interface paradigm emerges every 10 years. Mm -hmm. For me, AR and VR are not ready to go mainstream right right now. There's too much still to be figured out. Mm -hmm. Um, But 10 years from now, I could see AR being 
you know, the next interface paradigm that as you walk around in the world, literally you, we can read and write every pixel that we're seeing and, and really create the experience, the augmented experience that, that we want. So in order for AR and VR, well, let's focus on AR to work well in my life. I need to really be able to understand the world um, and understand the physics of the world. So if I place uh, an augmented reality object into my physical world mm-hmm. needs to kind of look like and work like, um, you know, real objects. And today systems aren't, we're not quite there yet. Uh, we also need the equivalent of an OS. I need to be able to point to things in this world easily. I need to be able to maybe have haptic feedback um, to, you know, to interact with them. When Windows came out, we had dialogue boxes and menus and file system. And there were all these kind of core base elements that were standardized that all the other programs could be built on yet. And I feel for AR, those those core principles of how do you search for things? How do you know, how does, how do you grab things? How do you manipulate things? How do you discover things? How do you store them? How do you find them? How do you reference them? Um, that still hasn't been figured out enough and standardized, which makes, you know, since we don't have the OS completely done yet, it's hard to build lots and lots of applications for it. So, uh, and then the role of, of a conversational assistant I think as you're walking around the world, um, and there are now augmented objects in that world, you know, voice and speech and language is a huge component of that OS. I mean, you can talk and say, Hey, you know, bring up uh, certain information and put it over here and point. And then that should help, um, you know, tell you where in your visual display you want this information. Um, so I think it makes sense, but. It's to me, it still feels like we're in the research phase yeah. for all of this. And it just hasn't yet. You, you need it all to come together. The whole thing has to be together mm-hmm. to be kind of ready for prime time. And then once it's solid, then we can build all the applications that we would want. And so, like I said, I, I think just historically, you look every 10 years, things change. I'm kind of penciling out 10 years from now that. My next big, you know, user experience breakthrough will be based on AR. That makes sense. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you created so many great products like Siri. And so, but, you know, what do you hope to accomplish in, in the coming years? I mean, you talked about, about that a little bit, but is it to create like the third wave of innovative digital assistant or, or become one of the most creative magicians out there? I know you like magic, right? So, or maybe both. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do like magic as a hobby, yeah. um, especially with my son, but I don't think that's going to be my next, okay. my next profession. Um, so I've really been pursuing two different threads in my career over the last 25 years. One is the assistance thread, and I keep trying over and over again from 1993 through the 90s, through the 2000s, um, and and hopefully we're getting very, very close to what I imagined uh, 25 years ago. Um, so I, the second thread in my career was from a mentor. He's, he's perhaps the greatest computer scientist um, ever, mm-hmm. but quite unknown. His name was Doug Engelbart. Okay. And he actually was the inventor of the mouse, of Windows, of hypertext. Wow. 
And he did something called the Mother of All Demos uh, in 1968, mm -hmm. where he showed shared screen teleconferencing, uh, interactive computing, editors, email, Windows. I mean, pretty much everything that makes up our personal computing yep. and Internet experience today. He demoed in 68. And the reason he created all this technology was not for technology's sake. He said the world will be faced with ever complex, urgent, global problems. And unless we get better as a species to think and work together to solve global problems, we're not going to survive. And, that, and so he dedicated his life and his career towards trying to augment human intellect um, by forming high-performance teams at a global scale to solve problems. So I've, I've tried to do things like that. I was a founding member and first developer at change.org, yep. which is the world's largest petition platform, more than a quarter of a billion members. You see anything wrong in the world, you just go say, I want this organization to make this change, and here's why. And if people like your idea, um, they click on the petition, and now you get a couple hundred thousand votes, and that shines a spotlight on that organization or that person to make that change. And everyday victories happen. So that's one simple attempt to solve real-world problems by harnessing the collective intelligence of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, I think if I were to do a next company, a next project, I would swing back to that side. I've done a lot in the assistance space. Yeah. I think I have more to do in the um, how can we collectively solve global problems uh, better. Yep. Um, so I think that probably uh, the next, you know, my next project or effort would probably be more in that space. I mean, it's an awesome goal, right? So, but listen, look, we are at the end of the, the, the show, but I just want to thank you very much. That was a great conversation. So uh, thank you yeah, thank for you. part of it. Um, and I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Adam. Okay. Thanks so much, Julian. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of your day.